You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 40. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are continuing our ongoing conversation about American kestrel conservation. Last week, we shared with you a conversation with the director of the American Kestrel Partnership, Chris McClure, and today we have an interview with senior scientist at Hawkwatch International, Dave Oliar. Hawkwatch has been playing a crucial role in kestrel research for decades through the raptor migration count sites that they operate all across the western U.S., It was through the data collected at this network of migration count sites that Dave and others at Hawkwatch were able to identify kestrels as a species of concern. Although kestrels remain widespread and common in many areas, migration count numbers have been declining over the past several decades, indicating that there's reason for concern and further study. Dave explains what this migration data really means for kestrel populations and how Hawkwatch International, along with its partner organizations, is working to determine the cause behind these declines. You can also see Dave in action if you check out our new short video about the American kestrel. We'll have that video embedded on the show notes page for this episode, which you can check out at wildlensinc.org eoc40. Now on to the interview. All right, I'm here with Dave Oliar, who is a senior scientist at Hawkwatch International. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to come on the show and talk about um, the research going on at Hawkwatch International and also uh, this research on kestrels specifically. Um, I, I kind of want to start start things off, though, by getting a little bit of background on Hawkwatch International. So I'm curious to learn, how, how long has the organization been around, and what's the central mission? Sure. Um, so Hawkwatch International, or its precursors before it was renamed to Hawkwatch International, it's been around for 30 years. We celebrate our 30th anniversary next year. Um, and it was founded essentially as a conservation, science conservation organization dedicated to um, monitoring of raptor populations in North America um, and primarily in Western U.S. And so it was founded, our founder Steve Hoffman started off by spending falls um, exploring different ridgetops and mountaintops in Western North America looking for high volume flyways for different birds of prey. So hawks, eagles, owls, falcons. Um, and so he identified good ridges where they saw lots of, of, of raptors that migrate through. And so essentially when we would find a good ridge top, we would establish um, long-term standardized monitoring and trapping of birds that migrate through those areas. Uh, birds of prey are particularly hard to, to get a good census of during winter and during breeding because breeding seasons, um, particularly because they're, they have big territories, they're pretty spread out on the landscape. And so during the fall, um, they all tend to use sort of the same flyways and highways um, to migrate south to areas where there's better um, weather, better food supplies. And so they kind of concentrate along those. So by sitting in one place, you can get a, a pretty good count um, of regional populations of raptors going through those areas. So Hawkwatch was founded to start doing that and has been doing that in, in many areas um, for 30 plus years now. Um, and so that's sort of our, our flagship and, and founding project, and it's still a big part of, of what we do today. 
Um, and so, so now Hawkwatch has, has morphed a little bit, and, and we spend time monitoring migrating raptor populations, but we also do a lot of winter and summer research on habitat use, um, movement ecology, breeding ecology of different raptor species and, and, and species that are of concern for various reasons. Education and outreach is also a really big part of what we do. So we have an education department that goes to schools and basically introduces school children to conservation ideas, science ideas, and actually uses some of our data uh, to to teach math and science um, to, to, to school kids. So I'm curious, how many of these uh, raptor migration uh, research sites um, does Hawkwatch operate? So that number has changed throughout um, the 30-year history of, of Hawkwatch. Currently, we have eight long-term fall migration sites that we, that we still operate, and they're, they're mostly all in the western U.S., um, ranging from um, northern Washington um, down to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is the, uh, the biggest, uh, biggest known raptor migration site in North America. We see uh, sometimes a million birds pass through there. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> So uh, I'm curious to learn how, how you, Dave, how, how you got interested in uh, studying birds of prey. Sure. Um, so, I mean, anyone that sees a hawk soaring in the air, a falcon flying through the air, um, you know, most people are pretty impressed by the, uh, the majesty and just the skill and, and how graceful and good those birds are at doing what what they do. Um, as an undergrad, I grew up in Texas, um, and as an undergraduate student, um, I worked with a professor who's my mentor. He studied um, eastern screech owls and um, red-tailed hawks and started working with him outside of class to, to help out on those projects and sort of became hooked. Um, then when I decided I wanted to go to grad school, I had the opportunity to study small forest owls in northern Utah, but out of um, Boise State University in Idaho that has a raptor um, master's program. So I went down that road and uh, spent a good time um, investigating songbird populations in the Northwest for my PhD. And then after that, I had the opportunity to come work for Hawkwatch International, and, and here I am. I, I kind of want to dive into a little bit of uh, specifics on the American kestrel. I mean, in your mind, what makes this a unique and interesting species to, to study? Um, so American kestrels, I'll just call it kestrels, the kestrels the rest of the time, but they are North America's smallest falcon. So falcons are birds of prey that have long tapered wings. They're built for speed. And the fastest animal that we know about, the peregrine falcon, um, uh, reaches speeds of 200 plus miles per hour in, in stoop. And so falcons are fast. Um, falcons are pretty agile. And being the, uh, the smallest North American falcon, kestrels are of interest and actually, for the most part, historically, have been one of our most abundant birds of prey. You're pretty, they're pretty easy to spot hover hunting over highway medians or sitting on uh, wires along, along freeways and sort of open areas. And so um, they're pretty common, and they're, they're one of the birds of prey that most people um, know um, or have seen, and you tell, you tell them about what they're doing, they're like, oh, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen those birds doing their thing. Um, so kestrels are interesting um, to me, particularly, uh, I'm... I mentioned I studied owls. Owls are cavity nesting birds, and American kestrels are also cavity nesting birds, which means that they they nest in tree holes or holes in buildings or holes in cliff sides, and so um, they're they're interesting in that regard, uh, and, and that might be one of the reasons that they're declining. And we'll talk about that probably a little bit later. Um, another interesting thing about American kestrels is that you can tell the sexes apart um, by their plumage. 
most most birds of feathers uh, most birds of prey or most birds in general you you can't do that very easily so uh, male kestrels are a, a very colorful small fast bird they've got uh, rufous and black body uh, and and then the neat thing about the males is they've got a really thick terminal tail band that you can spot when they fly overhead so if you see that band you know you're looking at a male and if you see them pop side they've got uh, beautiful slate blue shoulders um American kestrel females don't have the thick tail band. They've got thinner bands on their tail. They're rufous, and they don't, they don't have the blue shoulder. So it, it's neat in that you can you can know the, the sex of the bird just by having it fly overhead pretty easily. So it makes them um, easy to identify, and that makes it a great starter species for um, citizen science researchers or anyone getting into, into birds um, to, to sort of know about. Yeah, that, that's a really great point is yeah, how, how easy it is to identify them and as a good species – yeah, I, I guess a good a good sort of introductory species for folks that are starting to get interested in birds. And I mean, it's also just a beautiful bird. I mean, and compared to other raptors, it's it's a really colorful bird. You touched on um, the fact that kestrel populations are declining. Um, so I do want to sort of delve into this issue over kestrel declines. Um, so, I, I mean, what what do we know about population declines for this species? Sure. So um, I guess, you know, I'll, I'll make a little plug. I talked about Hawkwatch's monitoring of fall migration and how we've been doing that for, for 30 plus years. Um, the, the thing that comes from, from doing this long-term monitoring for such a long time for, for kestrels and for other species is that we can start to see long-term trends in, in the numbers of birds that we see passing through our migration sites. Um, and so with American kestrels, what, we, what we've seen um, across much of the West, much of Eastern um, North America too, where other Hawkwatch um, sites operate, but other other organizations exist, is that um, kestrel numbers on fall migration at least have been going down since about the mid 1990s, and so we see these declines. Um, we're also seeing sort of declines in the number of breeding birds, where they've looked at that in um, in eastern North America too through um, breeding bird surveys, and so sort of these two. Um, different signals of, of kestrel populations maybe declining is sort of set off the, the alarm that maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to what's going on with, with the species. Um, and so we know that there are declines and well, now we want to try to understand what's going on with those declines. And so that's led to Hawkwatch International, um, along with a lot of other organizations and researchers across North America, starting to pay attention to kestrel breeding populations um, and kestrel wintering populations and sort of survival um, year-round for what's going on. And so um, those efforts are going on continent-wide, but then here in um, Salt Lake City, Hawkwatch International has got a, a focused research project where we are taking advantage of citizen scientists, volunteers, um, and having them go out and monitor kestrel nests for us. You touched on uh, sort of the difference between looking at uh, kestrel populations during migration versus looking at breeding populations of kestrels. What does looking at the numbers during migration tell you versus looking at breeding populations? Sure, that's that's a great question. So we you know we monitor populations during of raptors during the fall migration because it is relatively efficient and easy to sort of sit in one place when we've identified high-volume locations to uh, get a sense of how many birds are coming by. 
Um, and so if we start to see a decline, we see, if we see a, a decline in numbers of birds during, during migration, spring or fall, it can tell us a couple of different things. So it might mean, um, one, there actually is real population decline, um, which would mean we need to take conservation action and kind of pay attention to what might be causing the, those declines. Um, it also might mean that there's just fewer individuals migrating, um, and that certainly might be the, be the case, too. We know... Um, with climate change that um, some areas are warmer and um, and more hospitable during the winter. And so some populations of, of, of different wildlife species are becoming less migratory than they used to be. And that certainly might be the case with American kestrels too. So there might be fewer individuals migrating, not because the population is declining, but just because they're not migrating. Um, and then we also, you know, we are sitting in a, f- a few locations counting those birds coming by. Uh, again, with changing weather patterns and dominant winds, we might just see that the birds are taking a different path. So sort of three things could be happening when we see migration numbers going down. Real population decline, less, less um, a lower portion of the population migrating or individuals taking a, a different path. And so, um, you know, all three of those things are, are interesting from a conservation perspective. And so, regardless of what's driving that we want to we want to we want to tease that out and to start to tease that out we need to pay attention to what's going on on the breeding grounds and or the wintering grounds and so that's what some of these other efforts are starting to look at we pay attention to um birds on the breeding grounds and during the breeding season basically you know populations might be declining one because individuals aren't nesting as successfully so we're not having as many young kestrels produced um, or individuals might not be surviving either the young or the adults and so it just might be that there's higher mortality rates in areas for for some reason Um, and so starting to pay attention to um Nesting success and nesting output and survival um, is those are really the mechanisms that you know are most likely one or all of those are, are driving the numbers going down potentially. So that's that's what we're starting to try to pay attention to. I mean, ca- can we definitively say that kestrel populations are declining, or uh, or do we just know that something is changing? within the population dynamics and as far as how they migrate. And the next step is to figure out what change is occurring and whether or not that change is an overall population decline. Sure. I think um, we, we can say that most likely they are declining in some areas, not only because of my, migration numbers, um, but again, um, there are other sort of um, continent-wide efforts to sort of um, – document the number of different bird species um, during the breeding season. One of those is a breeding bird survey, which is uh, basically uh, occurs during the breeding season and um, numbers of kestrels picked up on some breeding bird survey routes are also starting to, to go down in some areas. So I think, um, you know, that taken together with migration data, uh, we use as many, you know, pieces of information as we can to the puzzle sort of suggests that we certainly probably are seeing declines in some areas. Right. And of course, just because you see declines in some areas doesn't mean that kestrels are necessarily declining throughout their range, right? Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. In fact, um, we see we see declines on migration, at least in the western U.S. and in the eastern U.S., but uh, um, I mentioned Corpus Christi, our migration site that sees the biggest number of birds in uh, North America, and actually kestrel numbers are, are on the increase for, for that count, suggesting sort of that kestrels, they may be doing okay sort of in, in uh, middle America. So that's that's an interesting difference, and I think that's, you know, 
most ecologists will tell you it depends for that's the best answer to, to anything. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, where you are and, and, and what species you're talking about is going to depend on whether you're, you know, you're seeing how they're doing or not, whether they're increasing or declining or staying stable. Gotcha. So uh, I'm, I'm wondering what you have been seeing, um, you know, locally in, in the Salt Lake City area where uh, Hawkwatch has been um, doing this uh, breeding kestrel research. Sure. Um, I might give you just a little more details on sort of what we're trying to get at with that effort. And then yeah, I'll tell absolutely. you what we're, what we're seeing in the past uh, um, few years. So this is, we just finished our third year of, of a citizen science study of kestrel um, nesting during, during the spring and summer. Um, one thing that I didn't mention, I don't think is that, so kestrels are cavity nesters. And one of the things we think they, you know, one of the reasons they might be declining in some areas is that we might be losing nesting sites so uh, you know trees with holes or cavities are a pretty important habitat element for for these guys and for other cavity nesters and we know um, big dead trees in, in city parks um, tend to get cut down for liability purposes um, and big trees in some areas tend to get cut down or have historically for, for lumber purposes so we've lost a lot of our our big hole bearing trees and I think we're starting to see some impacts on a whole lot of hole nesting species because of that. Um, the good thing for American kestrels is that they tend to use nest boxes. And so we can we can sort of put up artificial cavities, if you want to think of them that way, um, in areas. And when we do that, they, they tend to get used pretty well by, by kestrels. And so we um, currently have 205-plus nest boxes up and down the Wasatch Front in, in, in Utah, sort of ranging from... Um, Brigham City, which is about 40 miles north of Salt Lake, um, down to American Fork, which is about 30 miles south of Salt Lake. And we have um, anywhere from 25 to 30 plus volunteers per year who go and check those boxes uh, weekly to, to let us know if there's kestrels there um, in the area and if they're using them and any other species that are using them too. Um, and so we've been doing this for, for three years. Um, our nest boxes are sort of in a bunch of different landscapes. So if I backtrack for a second, sort of we've talked about kestrels declines and whether it's real or not, but what some of the ideas behind what might be causing those declines are one, loss of cavities. So we're putting up nest boxes to study that. Um, but two, just sort of changing land cover and land use in a lot of different areas. Um, so going from wildland to um, sort of uh, a extraction landscape, either agriculture or forestry, and then also moving into sort of urban landscapes. So we've sort of got changing landscapes across North America and sort of um, we're interested in how kestrels and other species might be responding to that. So one of the thoughts is those changes might be causing, um, changes in landscape might be causing a uh, drop in number of kestrels in some areas. Uh, the other thing is that they could be competing for what nest cavities there are out there with other species, particularly with invasive species like European starlings are cavity nesters. Um, we know that they are doing very well um, across the U.S. And so we get a lot of starlings that use our boxes too. And the idea might be that just competition with starlings and squirrels and other cavity nesters uh, might be having an impact on kestrels too. Um, and then sort of last, lastly, we, we're starting to see that um, some other bigger birds of prey are, are moving into um, developing areas and urban areas. So, for instance, the Cooper's hawk is uh, uh, a medium-sized bird of prey that that feeds on on 
medium-sized birds. And, and there's been some anecdotal evidence, at least in Pennsylvania, that um, Cooper's hawks um, take kestrels on occasion. And so that might be yet another factor um, that could be leading to kestrel declines in some areas. And I've actually, so uh, I live in Salt Lake and I've got a few nest boxes near my home and we actually monitor those um, and had kestrel nests, kestrels nesting in those um, this season. And uh, I was out in my backyard and heard a big ruckus, heard the, the, the nearby park kestrel going crazy. And I'm like, oh, there's a kestrel. Uh, what's going on? They're making a lot of noise. They start getting closer and closer to my house. I'm sitting out in the backyard and then suddenly I see a Cooper's hawk come bombing through across my yard carrying a prey item and an adult female kestrel chasing wow. that in hot pursuit. So I actually witnessed firsthand, you know, maybe that's the one time that it happened, but um, certainly Cooper's hawks do occasionally take fledgling kestrels at least. So that was a pretty crazy experience. I mean, a super, super neat and interesting thing to see. Um, but yeah, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I hope that's not my color banded bird. Um, <laughs> right. So um, so our nest boxes, I, I think I got off on a tangent, but our nest boxes are located in wild areas like uh, along the Salt Lake City shoreline, um, Antelope Island, which is a wild state park in, in the, in the uh, Great Salt Lake, um, but then also in agricultural areas and then in areas that are urban or developed. And we sort of got them in sort of new areas where urbanization is taking place. So we're hoping to capture um, change there. And then we have uh, nest boxes in sort of really highly developed areas like downtown Salt Lake City and in a lot of uh, um, city and county parks. And so we're sort of trying to get uh, landscape-specific nesting success on those guys um, and also landscape-specific survivorship. where We put um, unique alphanumeric color bands on on kestrels and, and let them go and you can spot those with a spotting scope so you can see oh that's a blue band with a k and a b on top of it and and the idea is uh, we send our army of volunteers out with spotting scopes looking for those things and when they see when they see kestrels with bands they record the, the when and the where so we kind of get where they move and how long they live and we're hoping that'll give us some insight into whether they do better in those types of landscapes too gotcha so uh, i mean what what have you seen so far any sort of preliminary results from this research? Sure. Um, so it, it's pretty early on. So we've got three three years of data. And I think last this past year, we've, we've put up more nest boxes and seen more kestrels use the boxes each year. And so we're, we're getting to a plateau where we know the birds know where the boxes are and we're going to get pretty stable nest numbers going forward, I think. We had 70 nests this year. Um, and some of the results are still coming in, but they Birds, for the most part, seem to be pretty successful in all of the landscapes. They're slightly more successful if you take one or two years of data in an urban setting, which is interesting. Uh, we, we certainly need more, more years of data to, to sort of back that up and see if that's a real, a real signal or not. But um, you know, the, with, the, with this, the couple years of data we have, they seem to be higher in terms of nest success, at least, um, in sort of the urban settings. Uh, and that might be because there's more food or, or not. I think what will really come to bear um, is once we get a number of years with color banded individuals and start to get survival to see whether or not survival is, is higher in some landscapes. Um, for a lot of bird populations, a lot of birds, um, there's a whole suite of, of dangers in an urban setting um, that don't necessarily exist in, in wildland or ag settings like buildings to hit, cars to collide with, um, 
cats that are out quite a bit. And so, you know, it'll take a while before we can tease that out and say for sure. But I think, well, you know, once we get a, a good number of years of data behind us, it should be fairly interesting results and, and answer some important conservation questions for the species. I want to jump into this this topic of this new genetic research that has been developed by, by Kristen Ruig and, and others at, at UCLA. Maybe to start things off on this topic, you can just tell me how you were f- how you first found out about this uh, th- this new research uh, going on at UCLA. Sure. So um, so Kristen Reg was a, a lead author on a paper uh, um, that came out um, in a scientific journal and also gave she gave a uh, talk at the American Ornithologi- Ornithological Union meeting um, two years ago. Um, looking at um, SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, I'll just call them SNPs the rest of the time. So these are unique, high-resolution gen- genetic markers, and, and she looked at uh, Wilson warbler populations. Um, and so, um, what she was actually able to do is, is basically from genetic samples from blood and or feathers, depending, you use both depending on what you're doing, but actually be able to identify individuals trapped on migration um, and identify what breeding populations they've come from. Um, and so this is, this is pretty, pretty awesome results and a pretty exciting uh, method to be able to start to learn, um, you know, what's going on. Uh, one of the biggest knocks on uh, migration monitoring, particularly for raptors, is we're counting a lot of raptors flying over any one of our sites, but we really don't know where they've come from. Um, and so this this new genetic method um, that 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 Kristen's uh, developed and, and led the um, the charge on will actually potentially help us be able to say, oh yeah, we know that birds from Alaska are passing through our Goshoes Nevada migration site from mid September to the the end of September potentially. Um, what it could really can tell us is what populations breeding populations we're sampling when we're when we're counting at a different. Uh, or at a specific migration site, if that makes sense. Um, and so we we want to use this first and foremost with American kestrels because we want to know um, what are the subpopulations in North America and if there's different subpopulations of kestrels that are declining, then we can focus conservation efforts or research um, on those particular areas. So um, we're collaborating with Julie Heath's lab at Boise State University, with uh, Chris McClure of the Peregrine Fund and the American Kestrel Partnership, um, and Kristen to sort of uh, try to build a base map of American kestrel um, breeding populations using this this SNP method. And then what the next step for us will be to get samples from wintering kestrels and kestrels on migration and be able to basically say, ah, these birds that we're seeing during migration or in the winter are coming from these these breeding populations. And that'll be really useful and really powerful. I just want to sort of uh, make sure I'm, I'm understanding this correctly and you sure. know, make sure all of our, this, this is clear to all of our listeners. <laughs> um, I mean, basically the, the first thing you have to do is you have to collect samples of genetic material from a wide variety or sort of a representative variety of kestrel populations all across the continent, right? Yes. Yep. Gotcha. So we, we are reaching out to kestrel researchers all across the continent and asking them during, during the breeding season, which is April through June, most places, July, um, asking them to take blood samples from, from, 
kestrels in their study area for us and send that to us. And so we're, we're getting those samples from a lot of different areas, um, you know, four corners of North America. If you want to think about it that way, we're trying to get blood samples from all of those areas. We'll bring those um, or have those sent to the lab at UCLA, and they will build this base map that sort of describes the genetic variation using the SNPs technique um, for kestrels across North America. So then we've got that base map that identifies these are where we see unique genetic signatures across North America based on the samples that we got. Gotcha. And And then once you have that map that's been built, then every time you take a new sample, you can compare it to that map and identify where the bird is coming from. Exactly. So then we've got a we, we've got drawers full of kestrel feathers here at Hawkwest International that we've taken over the years um, from our migration sites, and we, we continue to collect those samples. Um, we're taking feather samples of, of wintering birds um, in in the Utah area, and other people are doing the same thing. And, and so, just like you said, we'll be able to take those feather samples, um, extract genetic material from those, and basically assign those to different. Um, subpopulations based on on that base map so are will you be able to take samples that have been collected in the past and basically you know look at sort of previous data and gain more knowledge from that that's that's the hope and that's my understanding i think uh the the geneticists can speak a little more to, to just how far back we can go um but we, you know, genetic material does degrade over time, but we should be able to try to extract some information from historic samples, from museums, from collections, from, from, from wherever. And, you know, as long as we're able to extract the material, then we can assign it to a location. We certainly won't be able to do that for 100% of the samples, but the hope is we can look back historically and get some of that, that information. And then we can also start, continue to collect samples going into the future and get some of that information, too. And right. the uh, you know the cool thing the cool thing is is that you can then look, um, you know, and know that birds passing through Corpus Christi or birds passing through the Goshutes, Nevada, are are coming from these populations. And you can even look at samples. You know, we collect the dates um, when we catch birds, and so um, at least with the uh, with the earlier study on songbirds, um, Kristen was actually able to show that different times of the migration season had different populations of birds passing through. So Alaska birds come through earlier or later or that sort of thing. So then, then we can start to say, do we see declines within a season? And, and if we do, we might be able to say, oh, those declines are probably from this subpopulation because this is when they pass through. And that would be really cool and powerful. Right. And then it sort of, a lot, it, it sort of shows you what breeding populations um, research, researchers should take a closer look at, right? Because if you see exactly. declines during migration and you are able to track that back to the area where birds are breeding, then you can start investigating further and learn whether or not, like, you know, is this, are, are these birds truly, is this population of kestrels truly in decline? Or maybe, um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, um, just lower percentages of them are actually migrating, right? Exactly. Um, so this, I mean, this this is not, uh, I mean, this is a complex sort of long-term project, right? Where, I mean, it's going to take years and years, I would imagine, to sort of tease out all these different details and sort of paint a picture of what's happening to kestrel populations continent-wide. Yes, 
definitely is going to take some time, but we're, you know, we're, we're working towards that and we're working towards that with partnerships between, um, research organizations and then also research organizations like the, the, like Cockwatch and like the Peregrine Fund that are taking advantage of volunteers and citizen scientists to go out and, you know, increase our eyes and ears on the ground exponentially so that we can really get good sample size and, and, and cover more ground than, than either organization or any one person could do on their own. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it seems like this project in particular and this species in particular, um, it's really important to have these collaborative relationships, I mean, both with other organizations, but also with citizen scientists and all these folks that are helping collect the data, just because this species is so widespread, right? Yeah, it's it's a widespread species. It's a very charismatic species. Um, our volunteers go out and they monitor, you know, nests and they they check them and they follow them from, you know, eggs to, to hatchlings to young kestrels that are flying around just out of the out of the out of the nest. Um, and so they, they become pretty attached. Um, and that's good because one, we get good conservation data from them. But two, you know, that experience resonates with them. They share with their family and friends you know, just how cool this little, um, you know, falcon is. Um, and, and that has a lot of staying power towards conservation too. You've got to get buy-in, um, you know, besides just science, getting buy-in and, and support from the general public is pretty important. I think kestrels are helping us go, you know, kestrels are a good intro to to doing that sort of thing in terms of conservation of, of birds of prey and, and just wildlife in general. I'm wondering what long-term potential you see for this type of genetic research. Um, I mean, is there potential for this to be expanded as a tool to use for uh, other raptor species? Um, I mean, do you could could this change sort of Hawkwatch's approach towards raptor migration research across the board? Uh, yes, <laughs> short answer. But yeah, I think you you nailed it. That I'm I'm super excited about. Um, this technique because as I mentioned before, you know, when we, when we count birds passing through our migration sites, we don't have a great idea. We have some idea. We've, we've done telemetry studies to know where the birds pass through and we ban birds and we kind of know, um, the migration paths that they take. Um, but we don't know for all of them, um, sort of where they're coming from or what our sample basin is. If you think of, you know, if you get the, the point where you're monitoring migration is sort of a, a catch point, where are those birds that are funneling through there coming from? And this technique has the potential, um, not only for kestrels, but for all of the species that, that we count and we we're starting to become concerned about telling us, you know, where they're coming from in terms of breeding populations. And that's, that's very exciting. It, it basically will, will give that much more credibility to our migration net- network and to migration monitoring in general across uh, North America and globally, potentially. Um, and it, like we talked about before, it re- can really potentially focus conservation efforts to locations that, that really need it for a different species. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we've gone through this whole interview without even mentioning the issue of climate change at all, which is kind of amazing. But, it, you know, it, I think it, I said it once. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. I'm glad you got it in there once. Um, but I mean, I just, it, it, it seems to me like, you know, this, this approach um, sort of combined with the, uh, the raptor migration research that Hawkwatch has been doing for, for decades um, has, has this 
really amazing potential to um, paint a much clearer picture of what effect uh, sort of global climate change is is having on different raptor species. It does. It does. Because again, we can know if we're seeing, uh, in, during migration at least, if, if sub subpopulations are not coming through or being sampled um, as much as they have in the past, that might suggest that they're not as migratory as they once were. Um, so it definitely has um, the potential to sort of inform inform us about um, climate change impacts on on migration, um, where where birds are migrating from, but also on migration timing. And that's one of the things we're actually working on right now. Um, the, the, you know, the nice thing about having 30 years of, of count data is you get population trends, but we also record the date. So it's, it's a wonderful um, encyclopedia of data to be able to start to go back and look for timing changes on when, when species are migrating through. And uh, we're, we're working on a, a scientific paper on that right now. We get, I gave a talk um, on, on phenology changes. That's what, what, what we're talking about. We're talking about timing um, for fall migration at the Raptor Research Conference last year. And so we're, we're working on that right now. So are, are a lot of other Raptor researchers. Um, so definitely. That will give us some insight. Uh, the other thing is we might see changes in, in basically just um, timing of breeding and, and reproductive output um, that are associated with climate change. So our efforts with nest box monitoring here and efforts elsewhere will sort of also help to inform that too. Well, thanks a lot, Dave, for coming on the show and sharing all of this really fascinating information about kestrels and um, uh, all this great information about this new research. Uh, sounds like it has a, a lot of promise. Um, and it's really exciting to hear about this and um, sort of see what potential exists for gaining a lot more information about about this really charismatic species um, and, and hopefully learning what's driving um, these declines for kestrels. Great. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been fun talking to you about this. All right. That was our interview with Dave Oliar from Hawkwatch International. You can really tell how excited Dave is about this new genetic tagging technique and the potential that this technique holds for the future. This new Genoscape project, which you can hear described in full detail in episode 38 of the podcast, is particularly exciting for researchers who are focused on bird migration like Dave. Without this new technique, folks doing migration research have no way of knowing where the birds that they're seeing come through a migration count site are coming from. They could be coming from Alaska or just the next ridge over. So by providing researchers with this crucial piece of information, this new genetic mapping technique will dramatically expand our ability to understand bird migration. And of course, it will hopefully show us what is causing kestrel declines. Very few species have been studied using this new technique thus far, so Dave and the kestrel biologists that he's collaborating with are truly on the cutting edge with this project. As you'll remember from last week's episode, there is a unique way for folks to get involved in this new Kestrel research. The American Kestrel Partnership is running a crowdsource funding campaign designed to raise the money needed to sequence the Kestrel's genome and build the Genoscape map for this species. This is the genetic map that Dave talked about in the interview. This is what will allow Dave and others at Hawkwatch to use their feather samples to learn what breeding population individual birds belong to. So if you're looking for a way to participate in this unique research project, head over to the show notes page for this episode where we'll have a link to that crowdsource campaign that I mentioned, as well as links to learn more about Hawkwatch and its work with kestrels. 
Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC40. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC40. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Thank you.